Well, I need to say that uh, coming to Alaska was quite an adventure. Um, I'm not sure that my wife, who was just, she and I were just newly married before we came in 1961, was full of adventure as I was. But once we got here, we uh, looked around for things to do. And in March of 1964, the Great Alaska Earthquake took place. And I think a number of you people in the audience probably remember that well. What I never and my wife never could figure out was we were in our vehicle and, and the road just would not stop moving. And to make a long story short, we thought we were going to die because the earthquake would not stop. It lasted for well over five minutes. And so we talked a little bit about maybe leaving the state because uh, adventure seems to be a very capital A there. <laughs> However, I have always been around explosives. I was born and raised in a small Montana mining community where my dad, I recall many times, bringing dynamite home in his lunch to take uh, uh, trees out and whatever had to be blown up was blown up, especially on New Year's <laughs> Eve. And so explosives became a kind of a ingrained thing, and it has some bearing on what happened to us in Alaska. It turns out in uh, June, uh, June 6th of 1965, literally, literally, 85 years prior, Mount Katmai, the volcano that started and finished off the Valley of the 10,000 Smokes, actually erupted on that day that my wife and I stood in the entrance to the Valley of the 10,000 Smokes and said, we're going to see Katmai. Well, <clears throat> as it turns out, Katmai was a second largest explosive volcano ever, ever to take place on this planet. Mount St. Helens was kindergarten material compared to Katmai. As it turns out, we decided that it's time for us to go, but before we go, before we went up, I took the liberty of, of knowing a little bit about this volcano, and when it exploded in 1912, people in Fairbanks, Alaska, and Juneau, Alaska, heard the sound. People in Vancouver, Washington, lost clothing on their lines from the acid rain falling on from this volcano. In addition to that, there were three full days and nights where there was no daylight in, in south, southwest Alaska. Kodiak was buried in one foot of ash. This volcano uh, was something to see. And fortunately, after the third day, a large uh, plug plugged the, plugged the volcano and stopped it from, from from uh, emitting any more ash and, and, and uh, lava. So anyway, as we start out up the uh, valley floor, um, it's like walking in a sandbox because there is so much ash and so much sand in the, in the valley floor, like over 2,000 feet of sand is in that valley floor. So we decided that we would walk on this crusty material up the side of the, of, of the mountain there and as we started up the, the, the ridge, we got about halfway up there, and I heard my wife scream. I turned around, 
and my wife had fallen up to her waist in a steam vent that suddenly broke beneath her feet. I quickly grabbed her and pulled her out and her, her, her pants were wet all the way to her waist and now there was a brand new steam fumarole in the Valley of the 10,000 Smokes. We should have named it Connie, but we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so it took a little while for my wife to convince that we should go on. <laughs> And, and my love of volcanoes, fortunately, I've had the opportunity to visit major volcanoes throughout our, our, our planet, Vesuvius uh, in Italy, near the city of Pompeii, also uh, uh, Popocatépetl in uh, Mexico, and of course the very hot volcano in Indonesia, Mount Bromo. But nothing compared and prepared us for what was going to happen next. So to make a long story short, we climbed up on the volcano plug, and as we were on the plug, there was a slight tremor. And I looked up, and there was a big atomic cloud, Mount Trident, two miles away, erupted right in, in front of us. We grabbed, I grabbed my camera, which was not a telephoto camera, snapped a picture, because I love volcanoes. <laughs> even in spite of the fact that this cloud was coming down on us. <laughs> and sure enough, the cloud enveloped us, and we started coughing and choking and got down close to the ground to try and get some air. And we cl clambered off of, the, off of the volcano dome, got down on the valley floor, and ran for our lives. We jumped into Knife Creek with clothes and all on us, and crossed Knife Creek, and as soon as we got across Knife Creek, the cloud had taken the ash all the way down the valley, down the valley away from us. So that night, we collapsed in our tent, and Mother Nature wasn't through with us yet. <laughs> as we were sleeping, totally exhausted, and we were sure that we would have died that day if we had not got away from it, we woke up in the middle of the night and we were looking at the floor of the tent. How did this happen? Well, the wind came up and that silica sand is so fine that it just slowly blew that tent out from underneath the tent and the tents very slowly rolled over the top and we were up <laughs> looking at the very top of the tent. It was at this time that my wife said something so prophetic, prophetic that I have never forgotten it. Can we please go home now? <laughs> and needless to say, I'd had enough. And to make a long, so what I did is the next morning we were walking down the valley floor, and lo and behold, here comes this flying banana helicopter out of the sky, lands about a mile away from us, and eight people in orange suits get out. And we're going, like, what are they doing here? We're out in the middle of nowhere. And of course, they were wondering what we'd do there, what we were doing there. It was, it turns out, it was the astronauts training for the moon landing that was going to take place <laughs> in 1969. <laughs> well, there was not much else we could say about that. <laughs> and we figured that that was Mother Nature's way of just giving us a big treat. And so, my wife and I walked out of the valley floor, and at that time, 
we realized that adventure is going to be part of our lifestyle, and sure enough, it has happened. Thank you.